It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Pastor Jeremy and I are uh, very close colleagues and brothers and friends. Um, we play golf together. He usually beats me. That's because he can hit the ball twice as far as I can. Um, once in a while, I'm a little bit more finessing around the greens, but we have a great time together. And uh, we've shared a friendship for probably 15 years and uh, growing closer together all the time. And so um, when he called and asked if I could come, um, his only regret was that he wasn't going to be able to be here uh, to share the morning together. But uh, it sure is a pleasure for me to be here on behalf of our district. Um, I'd just like to bring you greetings. Uh, you might wonder, what is Director of Church Health? Um, some people have said church health is the absence of non-health. Um, that that doesn't help. <laughs> what is church health? Uh, basically, what um, I do is I try to accumulate resources that we can make available to local churches to help them grow in all of the areas that make for a healthy church family. Um, I also have the privilege of working with men and women who are seeking to have a credential in the free church. Uh, men going for ordination and for some of our women who serve as associate staff in women's ministries and music and children, uh, they can get another credential other than ordination. But we go through the same process of writing a paper and preparing for an exam council. And so I get to mentor people through that process. It's a great joy. I get a chance to help them think through uh, their blessing, their calling, and to help them write their paper and think through it, the areas of theology. And uh, that's a, a tremendous joy. I also uh, provide continuing education seminars. Uh, this year we are doing a series of seminars on uh, how to interface with our culture uh, in the area of religious freedom, uh, the homosexuality issue, um, how social media affects our families, uh, talk about medical ethics. We're going to have a couple of our pastors do a seminar on racism. And so... Um, we have a lot of fun providing continuing education uh, to our pastors. I also uh, work together with our pastors and geographic networks and organize them to get together to get to know one another so they can develop close relationships with each other so that when they go through issues that uh, they need extra support, they've got a colleague that they know and trust to come together and pray with. So... Uh, and then I, I get to meet guys and just listen, do what we call pastoral care, um, share uh, just my experiences. I've been a pastor for 42 years. I can say, I tried that. It doesn't work. Don't do that. Um, and uh, maybe I've learned enough so that I can finally be of use to somebody. But it's a real joy for me to serve as our, dis as our district church health guy. And uh, it's a privilege for me also to be able to go out and speak in local churches when pastors are away, as Pastor Jeremy this weekend is down, I think, in the Chicago area, participating in a family wedding. And so uh, it's a real privilege. So thank you for inviting me, and uh, I look forward to opening the word together. So as we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a great joy for us to be together today, and we anticipate your blessing on us as we read your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the word that you inspired and that you would use it in our lives to help us draw closer to you, to Jesus, and to the Father. I pray that you would protect us from anything that is not from you, and that that which is from you, that 
He would use it to penetrate our hearts, to take root, to grow and produce fruit. Lord, I pray now that as our teacher, you would apply the words of your, your word to our lives, just exactly where we need it to be applied. And we do so for the furthering of the gospel and to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. There's been a recent barrage of publications that have uh, deliberately attempted to demonstrate that Christianity in the United States is declining and will soon fade away. You might remember last Easter, Newsweek magazine published their annual assault on Christianity with an article that said, quote, the decline and fall of Christian America. In that article, they quoted what we know as the new atheists. Uh, these are uh, individual scholars, mathematicians, scientists, philosophers, who are, are putting forth the atheist agenda, trying to say that Christianity is not founded on anything reliable. So therefore, we must abandon it and become atheists. And there's an attempt to, to inflict this teaching on our culture, and some people are saying these atheists are succeeding. However, there are two um, scholars from uh, Oxford, uh, England, who have recently published a book called God is Back, How the Global Revival of Faith is Changing the World. They have quite a different perspective. They are saying that although the world is no longer hungry or receptive of shallow Christianity, Christianity that is just nominal, Christianity that doesn't mean anything, Christianity that is not relevant, there is a, a groundswell of hunger to the truth of Jesus. No longer are people saying, well, I'm okay to play church. They're saying, ah, church might have its problems, but I'm hungry for God. I want relevance in God. I want something that, that helps me to deal with the struggles I face in life. And maybe you're here today like me, sometimes wondering, what's going on in the world? What's the deal with these Mass shootings that we see way too often. What about all the wildfires out west? What about the, the hurricanes and the flooding in the south? What about the earthquake in, in, in Mexico? What about the crime in our cities? It's just not making any sense. I'm, I'm going through and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is just a difficult thing in life to deal with. Maybe you're dealing with a personal loss. It's hard to handle. Maybe you've got an illness that's limiting your life. Maybe you're dealing with a, a job that's hard and children that are difficult to manage or in a difficult marriage. And you're wondering, does God care about any of these things? Is the message of Christianity relevant at all as I face the realities of life in this culture. Is Christianity really fading away and headed toward extinction? Or is it really true that God is back? 
that there's a revival of God in the world? Well, I think as we ask these questions, we want to say, I need some help. I need some guidance. If I'm, if I'm going to trust in God, I, I need to have some, some guidance in this struggle. And so for that guidance, I would suggest that we turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I know the title of my, my sermon is A Survey of the Book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe I should have titled it Themes from the Book of Ecclesiastes. But if you have your Bibles and you open them to the middle, you'll probably get to Psalms and then move towards the New Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to give his perspective on life. And he starts out by saying this. At first glance, there is much about life that seems meaningless. There is much about life where it seems like it just doesn't make any sense. Read with me chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Modern way of maybe meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then look what he says. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around and around it goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Ever wondered why the ocean doesn't fill up? <laughs> you know, the, the, the streams all, well, here's what he says. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things to be among those who come after. And he says, verse 3, there's nothing new under the sun. Wow, he's kind of nailed it, doesn't he? He kind of outlines for us that, that life is meaningless. And Solomon wrote this and he said, I want to tell you about my journey to find meaning. And so Solomon, as the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the country, in, in the Middle East known world at that time, he goes on a quest to find meaning. And it's a quest that, that maybe some of us are on right now. So the first thing he does is he looks for intellectual pursuits. Maybe he can find meaning and becoming smart and wise. And so it says, beginning in verse 12, or ver let's, let's go to verse 16. It says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is but striving after the wind. For much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Boy, it seems that, that the more we know, 
the more difficult life becomes. And so we try to learn some more, and then we learn, wow, I didn't know that. This, this makes life even more difficult to handle, and I just can't figure it out. Solomon can't figure it out. Intellectual pursuits didn't satisfy. So then he goes to pleasure. Verse chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. For behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on to folly till I might see what was good from the children of man to do under heaven during these few days of their life. Over to verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained me, with me, and whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done to the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure. I was driving up this morning from um, Beaver Dam and big billboard, you know, talked about this adult bookstore, uh, Hidden Pleasures. You know what the deal is with pleasure? What, what satisfied you yesterday is going to take a little more to satisfy you today. And then tomorrow, you're going to have to have a little bit more. It's like the law of diminishing returns. There's this, there's this hunger, there's this drive under the sun in this life. It's just never going to be satisfied. We're looking for satisfaction in a place that it's not found. So Solomon says, well, maybe I can find it in material wealth. Let's accumulate things. And boy, we Americans can identify with this one, can't we? Let's go back to chapter 2. Begin with verse 4. I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubites, the delight of the sons of man. Didn't find any satisfaction in that at all. And I think we Americans need to recognize that no matter how much we have, we'll never be satisfied. Let me ask you this. Who is more satisfied? The man with a million dollars or the man with six children? And the answer is the man with six children because the man with a million dollars wants more. <laughs> 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 and 
That's really true, isn't it? How much, how much money is enough, they asked Nelson Rockefeller. And he said, just a little bit more. We're never satisfied with material wealth. And then there's career accomplishments. Let's, let's become the best at what we do. Now we turn over to chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. Solomon, verse 18, Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And here's why. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. <laughs> this is also vanity. <laughs> he says, you know, I can amass this great fortune and then I die and then someone else is going to manage it. They might lose it all. And everything that I did in this life is gone. Where is there meaning and satisfaction in that? There is none. Where else could he look? Well, you know, intellectual pursuits, pleasure, material wealth, career accomplishments. He looked everywhere. Tried to figure it out. Can we figure out life? I mean, Solomon couldn't figure out life. Can we find meaning in this world? I'd like to suggest to you that the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes and this search for meaning is found in understanding the phrase, under the sun. Eleven times in chapters 1 and 2, and then periodically throughout the rest of the book, Solomon talks about life being meaningless or that there's vanity in life under the sun. Now I would suggest to you that that phrase under the sun is referring to this temporal world. If we look for meaning in this temporal world under the sun, we'll never figure it out. We'll never find meaning. Because if we look for meaning and significance in anything under the sun, we'll be looking for meaning and significance from something that only God can give. We sometimes look for meaning and significance in our marriages or with our children. And we'll be constantly frustrated because only God can give us meaning and significance. If we expect our husband to, he'll let you down every time. Expect your wife to, she'll let you down every time. We expect our children to, well, guess what? They'll grow up and leave the house. Anything under the sun comes up empty. We just, we just don't figure it out under the sun. But does that mean that there's no meaning in life? Does that mean that we can't have any significance in life? Well, I'd like to suggest this principle as we move forward in Solomon's journey to find meaning, and it's this. Even though questions remain, when we place our faith in God, and listen to this, there is no need to figure it out. When we place our faith in God, even though there's questions, there's no need to figure it out. Inherent to biblical faith is 
faith. <laughs> that means there are some things about life that are a mystery. There are things about life that we simply can't figure out. But when life is about God, there is something authentic, something satisfying, something that we, lay, uh, we, we, we can find significance in when it's him. Then we can look at what we don't understand about life through the lens of what we do understand. We look at the things we, do, we don't understand through the lens of what we do understand. And Solomon gives us three things in this book of Ecclesiastes that we can understand. And when we place our faith and trust in those things that we can understand, we don't have to figure everything so what do we understand? Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look at chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. That's the bulletin. He says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made Crooked. Good question. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Sometimes we sing this song, Blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and takes away. Remember that song from, from the writings of Job? That's really true. God gives, God takes away. And when we can find our rest in the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he works out everything according to the providence of his will. God is in control of life. History is progressing exactly the way God wants it to progress. Sometimes we study prophecy and we think, oh, I'm going to figure it out, what's going to happen. Do you remember back about a month ago, September 23rd was supposed to be the end of the world. Are any of you familiar with that teaching that just kind of, it, it even showed up on the news media, you know? Um, that really was fake news, wasn't it? <laughs> Didn't happen. You see, prophecy is never intended to figure it out. Prophecy is always for the purpose of ethics. Prophecy is always given to us to motivate us to walk more closely with God. That's why God gives prophecy. It's in the Bible, so study it. Do the best you can to understand it, but realize its purpose is to motivate us to get close to God, not to try to figure out who the Antichrist is. By the way, if you look online, you can find Bible verses that will show that David Hasselhoff is the Antichrist. <laughs> it's there. I mean, people do this. They play this game with the scriptures and all these numerology things and all this. God never intended us to figure everything out. He did intend us to trust in him who is sovereign over life. And when we understand that, it's not necessary to figure everything out. 
Secondly, we also know that God is good. God is good. Sometimes we wonder about that, don't we? You think, God, how, how can a good God allow all this stuff to happen? Well, let's look at chapter 2, verses 24 and 20, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Over to chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is where we get the idea of God's common grace. He causes the rain to fall on the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. He gives mothers the ability to love their children, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. He gives us food. The farmers can grow food. There's a common grace that God gives to humanity because we are his creation made in his image. He doesn't ever want evil to happen to us in this life. But when Adam and Eve sinned, evil was thrust upon us. And so we experience evil. But because God is good, he can turn evil around for his glory. Let me give you three ways that God does that, demonstrating that he is good. Number one, hardship happens, but God is sovereign over it, and he turns it into a catalyst to make us strong. Paul tells us that when I am weak, then I trust in God. Then I am strong. Peter talks about it very specifically in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. He talks about all the hardships and difficulties we have, and he says in this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see how God takes the worst of the world and turns it for his glory? How God can say to us, you know, you're going through a difficulty, but, you know, I'm going to use this experience in your life and make you a stronger Christian. But that's not all that he does to help us know that he is good. Secondly, the cross demonstrates the commitment of God to identify with us in our suffering. He left glory and came and walked a mile in our shoes in order to pay the penalty for our sin. He didn't have to do that. But he did that because he loves us and he cares for us and wants to give us the blessings and the freedoms of what our Christian faith affords. One of my favorite testimonies is by a man named John Stott. 
Maybe some of you have read some of his books. Here's his testimony. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. See, that's Buddhism. Buddhism is you learn to remove yourself from this world and you seek a state other than this world and you try to remove yourself from the realities of hurt and pain and suffering. So that's, that's what the Buddhists attempt to do. John Stock continues, But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his humanity and pain to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Now there's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ. This is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. That doesn't answer all the questions, but it demonstrates how God is good. In the midst of the evil and the suffering, he came down and he experienced it himself so that we could have forgiveness of sins, so that we could have the gift of eternal life. The perfect God becoming stained in humanity because he is a good God. But not only does God make us strong, not only does he demonstrate his goodness on the cross, listen to number three, he turned crucifixion into resurrection where God ultimately demonstrated his power over sin and death. That's, That's the ultimate expression of God's goodness. You know, there are Christians who are persecuted living in Vietnam, India, Africa, the Middle East, places where Muslims are are cutting off Christians' heads, persecuted Christians in China, and people are flocking to faith in Christ. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when he rose from the dead, he defeated death. Death no longer has a hold on us. Because Christ rose from the dead. And when we place our faith in him, we are united with him, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. And these believers in these persecuted countries know that when they embrace Christ, their suffering will soon be over. And they will be in peace with God. 
You can't put a price tag on that. You know, I, I was uh, reading about a persecuted Christian talking to an American Christian. The American Christian said to him, how do you maintain your faith in the midst of persecution? And the Chinese Christian said, well, let me ask you that with another question. How do you maintain your faith without persecution? Because, see, the ease that we experience sometimes in the Western world is so easy that we, we forget the ultimate, the ultimate goal. It's not this world. It's not life under the sun. It's life above the sun. God is sovereign, and God is good so that we can have that experience of salvation from this world. But Solomon continues, because there's one, one more thing to think about. And that's this. What do we do with the evil that happens in this world? I mean, what do we do with, you know, have you seen the commercials of these children on TV? There's this adorable young man with, in the wheelchair who talks about St. Jude's Hospital and, you know, please give us, you know, $19 a day or whatever, a month or whatever it is. And this kid, you know, for, for kids like me, he says. And then I think, oh, these poor kids. You know, they're suffering. They lose their legs. They're fighting cancer. And they're just children. What, what about the evil? And what about the victims of, of bullies in this world? And what about the people who are victims of terrorists? And there's evil in the world. You know, God, what's going on with it? Number three. God is just. He's not going to just let evil go on without addressing it. Look at the last chapter, the last paragraph in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. So I've taken you through all of the quests, all of the answers, all the questions. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. For the believer, yeah, we'll give an account of our lives. But that'll be for reward. For evil, it'll be for judgment. Now, sometimes judgment happens in this world. And there were times when God demonstrated his judgment against people in this life. I think that's one of the reasons of the conquest of Israel into the promised land. To, to mete out God's judgment on the horrible, idolatrous, cruel, blasphemous cultures of the Canaanites. God judged them. I know that on Mount Horeb, Elijah was used by God to bring out judgment against the false prophets of Baal. I know that there are times when, when God uh, judged the enemies of Israel by sending a plague in their camp or or giving, giving a great earthquake that swallowed up God's enemies. 
Sometimes judgment happens in this world. Romans 13 tells us that sometimes governments judge sin. That's the purpose of government. But this is referring to a more complete judgment. It's referring to a judgment that is beyond time. We know and believe that a believer, when his life ends on earth, ends up in the presence of Jesus. We know that the prayers of those martyred for their faith are kept by God. And we know that they are vindicated in his final judgment. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, God's judgment and God's vengeance is perfect. And when his vengeance and his justice accomplish, is rained out on the world, it will accomplish perfect justice. When evil comes upon our lives, sometimes the temptation is, well, let's get on Facebook, and let's get on Twitter, and let's join our little group of, of colleagues, and let's, let's make a message to the world, and let's show everybody about how there needs to be justice, and let's organize and demonstrate and shout and, and do all these things and try to force people to justice, justice. <laughs> I really am very careful of what I put on social media. Um, once it's out there, folks, it's out there. <laughs> I'm very careful. But you know, I don't have to do that because I know that in the end, God will even the scales of justice. And he will reward us according to our lives. Not, by our, not for our sins, because our sins are covered by the cross of Christ. Our judgment is going to be on reward, based on reward. But for unbelievers, for the bullies, for the terrorists, for those that are aggressive, for those who are sinful, they, they think they're, the, the Psalms talk about, <laughs> talk about uh, people that laugh at God and they think they're getting away with it. They're not getting away with it. There'll be a day when, when God will judge them and that's a subject almost too horrible to talk about. But we do because it authenticates justice of God. So now you might be thinking, well, what do I do while I wait for God's justice? What, what do I do? I know that God's going to have justice. What do you tell the people in Vietnam? What do you tell the people in China? What do you tell the families who've got children that have cancer? What do you tell a, a, weave, a grieving widow whose husband was killed in an automobile accident or grieving parents? What do you tell people? I have three suggestions on what you do with evil in the world. Number one, grieve. Grieve. It's okay to cry. It's okay to lament. Um, a good portion of the psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms of lament, where the writer leads us in expressing our emotions to God and crying out to God and saying, God, this hurts. Yes, it hurts. And God says, grieve. It's okay. Let your emotions out. Work through the process. Don't stuff it. <laughs> grieve but not as those 
who have no hope because we know that God is sovereign, God is good, and God is just. Second, and I think this is really, really important, love. Love those who are grieving. Love those who are suffering. Love those who are having difficulties in this life. Feed the poor. Visit the prisoner. Take meals over to someone in your church who has had a hard time in life, going through a surgery, had a loss. Love one another in the midst of our suffering because of life under the sun. And third, hope. Hope. Hang on to the promise of God that there will be life in heaven with him. I read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. (laughs) Hope. Come together and hope. Because you can't figure it all out. And so Solomon comes to the end of his story. Even though questions remain, when we place our faith in God, there's no need to figure it all out. Under the sun, apart from God, life doesn't make sense. But when we understand God is sovereign, God is good, and God is just, we can find peace. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Don't set your mind on things under the sun because that's striving after the wind. Set your minds on things above, and there we will find peace. But doesn't that make us so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good? (laughs) Walk around as just these spiritual people. That's what Buddhists do, right? I close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, If we aim for heaven, we also hit earth. But if we aim for earth, We miss them both. Aim for heaven, my friends. Trust in God, who is sovereign and good and just. There's no need to figure everything out.